Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with Stanny Kulichov, founder of Ave, a decentralized, non-custodial money market protocol. Today is a special day because the team is celebrating their first Aviversary. Congrats, team. In this episode, Stani and I chat about the various advanced features of Aave version 2, which launched last year in December. We talk about everything from borrow lending features to credit delegation and flash loans to his thoughts on layer 1 and layer 2 chains and governance minimalism. For fun, I also tried out some finish with Stani. Please don't make fun of me for it. <laughs> As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Happy New Year, Stani. Welcome to Crypto One Stack. It's so great to have you on the show. Yeah, and thank you for having me, Leslie. And Happy New Year. It's, it's definitely a, going to be a DeFi year. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm sure most people tuning in know who you are, or at least are familiar with the name Ave. But for those who don't, Aave is a decentralized, non-custodial money market protocol that grew from ETHLEND, which was the first decentralized lending protocol that pioneered the concept of over-collateralized loans, which is, of course, the standard in the crypto industry today. Aave V1 launched in January 2020, and the protocol has seen exponential growth ever since, and we'll talk about that today. But Aave right now has over 20,000 users. They launched V2 Mainnet last month in December. And between Aave V1 and V2, the combined market size is now more than $2.9 billion, probably more since I last checked. <laughs> but similar to ETHLEND, which pioneered the over-collateralized loans, Aave pioneered the concept of flash loans, which we'll talk about today. In just nine months, Aave issued $500 million worth of flash loans and recently hit $1 billion in total flash loan volumes with nearly 1 million going to reward depositors since the launch of V1. So it really pays to be an early user. Stani, these are really impressive milestones. Were you expecting Ave to grow this quickly? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's been definitely something that uh, we didn't expect. When we built the, the version one of the Ave protocol, we, we kind of were expecting the same as we had in Ethland. So we, we built a product and, you know, expected some, some usage and, you know, increase it slowly as, as we get more and more adoption. And what happened this year definitely shocked us. We, will, we built the protocol, I mean, to, to sustain funds, kind of like that there might be like large amount of liquidity, but nothing like this. So I imagine maybe 5 million worth of value locked in the contracts was my, my expectations by end of the year. Well, the overarching theme in DeFi that's really emerged over this past year, and I'm sure will be explored into this year, is the theme of capital efficiency, right? And contrary to what TVL stands for, which is total value locked, DeFi is all about unlocking value yeah. and efficiently utilizing that value and giving people the ability to maximize their investments across various DeFi protocols, right? So to start us off, can you break down some of the primary ways that Aave enables greater capital efficiency and flexibility? Yeah, definitely. I think the whole protocol is designed to unlock value 
as an end user who holds some sort of cryptographic assets on currently on Ethereum, let's say that is of course accepted by the protocol and you deposit it into the Aave protocol to basically earn interest, you can then borrow against your value, basically another asset. This means that if you have Ethereum, for example, and you believe for the future of Ethereum, the progress of Ethereum, or you want to utilize Ethereum in the future some way, or it might be Aave token, it might be a link token, whatever, you kind of don't want to lose that position. So you want to keep that belief and wealth but you might need liquidity. So you know that you have a certain amount of value in, in, in that those believings, those assets, and but you might have, let's say, bills to pay or you want to do some other kind of strategies. So so when you deposit an asset and you are earning at the same time, a credit line is open to you. Mm-hmm. So you could actually borrow against your asset and, and then use that liquidity somewhere else. And very typical situation is where you deposit, let's say, Ethereum and you borrow stable coins. And then with those stable coins, you can convert to your fiat currency and, and you know, use it even in real life. So that's very basic uh, scenario. And second interesting thing is that when you actually do the deposit, so let's say you deposit stable coins or Ethereum, let's say stable coins, USDC, uh, you get in return AUSDC. That AUSDC represents the value that you deposit into the protocol 101. And what's cool about that is that it actually has the value of what you are depositing, but it also increases in balance as you are earning in the protocol. So, so the protocol auto- automatically, every second, it credits you interest rate that the protocol owns to you. So let's say if you deposit today a, a USDC, uh, you get the AUSDC, and then you come six months later, you can claim the underlying plus the interest rate that is credited to you. And because you have this eight token, you could use it somewhere else as a collateral. So it's unlocking the value. And the third thing, of course, is the, the ability to take flash loans. That's an interesting subject as well. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about investment flexibility with Aave V2, from my understanding, borrowers can have both the ability to borrow using like a stable rate and a variable rate as well with the same underlying asset from the same wallet. And again, this gives borrowers more options and flexibility for their loan position. I'm curious to know, you know, how are the stable rates calculated? How are they guaranteed? That's an interesting question. So so basically we already had stable rate mechanism during V1, but on V2, we, we kind of improved the stable rate mechanism. The interesting part is the Guarantee. So it's not actually guaranteed. It's guaranteed uh, until a couple of thresholds are met. And those thresholds basically are if that particular pool, 95% of that pool assets are utilized, plus the interest rate curve is at 25% on, on the variable rate, then there is a moment where the rate can be rebalanced. So anyone can call this function that rebalances the, the user's stable rate to a new market stable rate, which is very rare condition. It, it practically means that there has to be some very big incident. Let's say there, there's there's some farm, stablecoin farm that gives you 5,000% yield. So you want to take all the liquidity from, from Aave. And this actually has happened for the most liquid stablecoins, let's say USDC, DAI, USDT, they don't get rebalanced. But then we had one less liquid uh, stablecoin, which is the true USD. And, and that basically got rebalanced. And we actually had to, with the governance, to deploy a new 
interest rate formula that actually takes into consideration that there might be a, a farm that farm, you know, you can earn like 3000 APR. So you want to take all the liquidity that there is in Aave. And, and then, you know, there, this kind of rare condition can be met, which is something that you don't see in, in traditional finance. But other than that, you practically get a perpetual stable rate. And that's really cool because, you know, I mean, I love the idea where, where you have market rates with supply and demand, but the problem is not just like for institutional users that, that really need to understand like how much they're getting interest rate exposure, but just a traditional consumer, even though if you look at the track record of the variable rates, they're pretty stable. So, so let's say you might have a situation where you have a 20, 30, 35% increase in the rate that you're paying, but that's temporary. And, and then when you are looking like the average rate, it's pretty uh, actually decent. But I guess it's more like a psychological thing and also kind of like a reassurance for the end user borrowers that if they can lock a rate, they basically feel safer. And I personally feel that way. And that is the kind of ratio why we wanted to have this stable rate and guarantee interest rate prices for the end users. Right. So when you say anyone can call this function, who do you mean? Like who is anyone? Is it one of the Ave? admin, key holders, who is that person on the other side that can make this decision? So the cool part is there's no key holders other than actually the governance and the governance is practically the Aave token holders. But there is some function that can be called if some threshold are met. So for example, there's two particular ones. One is, let's say, if there is a position which is under collateralized. So let's say that the borrower's collateral has melted down to the extent that, you know, it doesn't cover the borrowing cost, including the cost of the capital, so the borrowing interest rate and, and then the liquidation penalty, then you know anyone can call that function and liquidate by placing back collateral into the system. So this is the whole liquidation game that we see in, in DeFi. So there might be a liquidator that is liquidating on Aave, Maker, and a bunch of other protocols. And, and actually, this network type of uh, system where you have liquidators is very efficient. And there's a couple of hundred liquidators just working on this compared to where in, in traditional finance, you might have two to three counterparties performing similar tasks. And in this rebalancing thing, it's pretty much the same. Anyone can go uh, and, and just call the function if the, if the condition is available. So there's no incentive at the moment to do that. But I guess like we'll see more, you know, this kind of like a functions which could be called by anyone and, and there should be some sort of a reward, the similar way as the liquidations are working. So this is how it practically works. Anyone can just participate. There's no admin, there's no manager in the sense that we're not doing much of the work. And actually it works way better when we are not doing anything because you know there are more wider range of people that are participating uh, in the governance and, and it works. The thing with DeFi protocols, they work better when you know they're not uh, dictated by the team. And it, it's, it's something new to me as well because Aave moved to a decentralized governance roughly like six months ago, like as an experiment ex- experience, this has been pretty, uh, pretty amazing because it's completely new to me. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's less work for you though, right? That just means you can divert your attention to other parts of the ecosystem. It's more work. Actually, it's, <laughs> yeah. it feels like it's more work. As a user of Aave, in what situations would I want to be, I guess, switching between stable rates and variable rates? Is that something that is incentivized? Um, Have you seen this on the platform? Yeah. So interesting thing is that when there's a lot of yield opportunities in, in decentralized finance, the borrowing rates tend to go up. It can be just one particular thing. It might be 
some sort of like liquidity provision in one particular protocol and then you know all the liquidity in Aave gets consumed and and it moves to that particular liquidity provision scheme and that means that the rates are going up if you see that there is sort of activity uh, you could lock yourself in into a stable rate and this is very smart because you know sometimes the rate spikes are quite high even though they are momentarily but still you know you you rather be on, on completely like unaffected by that so that's one thing and and then of course like if the market is going down usually it's it's better to be on on variable rate or if you ju- you're, you're just borrowing for sh- short time periods so if you if you're borrowing for let's say for a couple of weeks it doesn't matter what you're taking i mean maybe the variable rate is better even like below three months. But if you're taking like a long-term loan, then definitely like the stable rate is, is built for you. Mm-hmm. Do you see a lean on the platform of more people taking out shorter term loans versus longer term loans? Or is that, I guess, very depending on the market cycle that we're in? Yeah, I think we have a kind of like a base where we have long-term loans, but then we have this this activity of short-term borrowing. So it's, it's actually pretty fascinating because we see users that are borrowing five times, eight times a day, and uh, this might be because there's now more and more institutional usage. So, so I was discussing with one market maker, actually, I think it was from Singapore, and they said that they actually use Aave and they plugged in, in into their system. So when they don't have inventory to sell, they, they, they practically draw it from, from the Aave protocol, sell it, and they have their the collateral there, and, and they, they do it constantly. So definitely, and because they're doing big amounts, you know, it's, it makes sense. If, if you're a regular user, you, you probably won't do the same activities just because the gas costs will kill. The user base is very, very wide compared to what I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the concept of the reserve factor, which you introduced in this new version and how, how that affects the DAO that you've been working on? Can you talk about the relationship between those two? Yeah, definitely. So one interesting thing about the, the reserve factor. So in short, it is a percentage of what the protocol will set aside of the earned interest rate and puts it into so-called other reserve. And this other reserve is a is a treasury, which the other governance practically decides on what to do with it. And an interesting part about the, the reserve factor is that it collects that interest in form of A tokens. Mm-hmm. This is something new in the sense that when they, the reserve is collected, it's, it automatically already is managed treasury-wise. So you, it's compounding in interest. So that's, that's interesting. What's cool about here is that over time period, this reserve will grow and, and the our protocol governance, they can decide what to do with it. So we we haven't proposed anything yet. Like there hasn't been yet any proposal from any community member. But I guess like main things that there should be is giving grants to new developers, you know, for building new parts of the protocol, improving the protocol or creating tooling. So there should be a way to get grants from, from the um, uh, treasury the reserve and and also handling you know maintenance you know paying oracles and 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 also i would say any kind of action that requires cost and and that builds value uh, in into the protocol and I, I think this is something that now that the version 2 has the other reserve so constantly it accumulates interest and also it compounds and the reserve is growing we'll see more proposals but one important thing is here like what we actually tried to calculate when we set those reserve factors to certain levels is that the, the protocol becomes self-sustainable. 
we, we targeted that with 2 billion total value locked, roughly, the protocol reserves should grow annually something like 5 to 6 million in reserves. So that should be sufficiently enough to ensure that the protocol is self-sustainable without the, the Aave Genesis team. And this is very interesting because we are moving towards era where we have this DeFi protocols that actually run by themselves. They're governed with the um, community token holder governance, and they actually have a treasury. They have cash flow. So it becomes interesting to see, like, as they're expanding, like what kind of functions will be financed. And it's it's very, very fascinating time we're moving into. Let's expand more on that, right? In V2, you have basically given the governance keys, as you just mentioned, to the community of token holders. So now the community has the power to decide the future of the protocol. I would be interested to hear more about the additional features in V2 that enhance protocol governance that other protocols might not have introduced just yet. Yeah, I think when we built the governance version 2 protocol, what, what was interesting there is that we tried to think kind of like how to make as flexible governance as possible. So we introduced a way where you can actually create different kinds of uh, voting strategies. So for example, we have so-called uh, short time lock and long time lock. So so practically we use this long time lock uh, for things that should be governed and upgraded less frequently. And then we have this short time lock, let's say, where the voting period is 48 hours time lock and voting and, and delays and whatnot. And what's the idea there is that you could use this when you have to change the small things, asset listings, things that aren't like required that big uh, change. Then with the, the bigger time lock, it's applied to something that is very rare occasions. For example, if you need to change something in the token model. So many of the tokens are... You know, if you look at the, the DeFi space, they are uh, immutable. And, and this is problematic in the sense that if you need to, in the future, add some kind of innovation on the token level. Uh, and one of the innovations during this year was the vote delegation. So that that's something that's done on, on the token level. But what if the, in the future you want something else to be added? For example, now with the new token governance, Aave practically added proposition power delegation. So you could delegate your vote to someone uh, who, you, who, who you want to make decisions behalf of you. Uh, but also now you can delegate proposition power to someone who is technical enough to put up a proposal on chain and you can either delegate your vote or keep your vote and vote on, on those proposals. And, and this is kind of like innovation what we brought in. So if, if you want to have something like this, you will need to build on top and can't have in the token level. So that's why we have different voting strategies there. But the proposition power delegation by itself is, is very fascinating because I see that there's going to be, of course, like protocol politicians, but there's also going to be this kind of like a proposal makers that actually can do the the technical uh, heavy lifting and getting proposals on chain. Because like uh, it's 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 a clear fact that you know if 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 you want to 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 make a proposal, uh, you might not be able to do it by yourself unless it's it's very simple. Uh, parameter changes. You can create a user interface for for that for 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 anyone to actually create the uh, proposal, but then there is something maybe you want to change some part of the protocol, you know, and and there you need more technical people. So that's that's something that's very interesting to see. And we already had, uh, I think, now two uh, asset listings where proposition power was delegated. I think it was the uh, CRV token and then the Gemini US dollar 
one of the Curve community members, you know, he was asking for delegations and he received delegations and 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 he was able to put the on-chain vote. And same for Tyler from Gemini was taking proposition power and was able to put the with his team the proposal on chain and and then the community members voted upon it. And this will be super fun when when we have community developers that are actually you know developing things on on Aave and they can actually when they build things they could actually ask the proposition power from the community and they can put the vote on chain. So this is pretty interesting to see how it develops. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on the flip side, your response to folks like Fred Ursum with Paradigm, who has come out to say, I'm a proponent of governance minimalism, right? He claims that governance minimalism is important because it supports the primary value proposition of uh, protocols, which is credible neutrality in, in his words. And when it comes to governance, only quote unquote essential governance is defensible in situations where a core mechanism of the protocol requires, you know, human input and anything that falls outside of that definition, he says, you know, could be competed away over time. So what do you have to say to governance minimalism? No, I I definitely agree in some points uh, because um, I I personally think, I believe in governance minimalism as well from one perspective. I definitely believe that nothing is cooler than, you know, having immutable code, code that you can't change and basically, also, I would like to see that being the same case on, on the uh, network level that, you know, you, you, the, the network itself uh, isn't governed or, you know, isn't changed. So, so there is this kind of like a uh, certainty. Now, but the thing is that uh, it takes a bit time uh, for technology, uh, smart contract code to reach that level. Some things are very simple. Uh, for example, in case of uh, Uniswap, it's, it's very, very simple protocol in the sense that you are practically uh, you have a bonding curve and and then you have uh, agents that are supplying assets and you know and you have practically the consumption where you can you can uh, sell one asset to another and and, and in this case it's, it's uh, quite straightforward but many of the uh, <clears throat> financial products that are, are being built you know especially lending protocols with with all the risk factors and everything collaterals and so forth, uh, they're way, way, way more complex. And it, it takes time to a protocol to mature in a level that, you know, there's there is enough confidence that you can actually just make it completely in, immutable. Mm-hmm. So especially when you're building new innovation, this is usually the case that uh, no software we, is without any kind of like a uh, uh, box or, you know, failures. And this, is, this goes with everything, every software that uh, is being built. So it takes time to get into that kind of level. And it's important that you can actually uh, improve the protocol, but in a way that, you know, it's it's governed by uh, the community. So that's that's one thing, you know, that uh, in, in the beginning, I believe there has to be strong governance in the sense that uh, how the protocol should be improved. And in case of Uniswap, you know, how uh, how does the community actually uh, make their voice how the protocol should be built. So it's pretty much upon you know paradigm and you know the paradigm boys and 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 you know Hayden and his team like how it should be evolved. And and then on the other hand, when you could actually get the whole community and think about like how this could be improved, and they have a stake in the game, so they want to somehow participate. So I think it's a question of like firstly on on how complex things you're building and how how long it takes to to get the code to mature level that you don't need 
uh, the governance. That's one thing. And, and the second thing is that how you can get more people involved on what you're building. And governance is one of those things that actually tie people together. And this is actually very ironic because, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, in case of Uniswap, I love the example because I, I think we did our token generation in 2017 in the end, but Itlan had its product already early 2017. So our mainnet was on, on May and we built it during 2016. So quite early in, in, in so-called DeFi era. And w- what's interesting is that 2018 and 2019 was very anti-token, anti-token environment uh, until the point that actually Maker proved that, you know, you could have a governance token and, and, and you know, it helps to, to govern something important such as financial protocols and, and, and so forth. In Uniswap, there is always still this kind of like a uh, belief that you, you definitely don't need a token. And what happened during this year with the uh, SushiSwap vampire attack is that SushiSwap came and, and practically forked the code and created the token to get a community around it, to get people's around like stakeholders and so forth. And that actually uh, put Uniswap in a position that they had to come up with a token. It's very interesting because they're very like into anti-governance, but eventually they had to follow the narrative. That's the beauty of the whole, not just DeFi, but the you know on-chain ecosystem. So for me, that was pretty interesting kind of like a series of events. I want to turn our focus back to some of the borrow lending features on the platform. And this is something you mentioned earlier, which is credit delegation. And something that is a reality uh, on the Aave platform right now is that there's more liquidity available in the ecosystem than is actually borrowed by users. And you've quoted before that about 75% of the value um, in in Aave is not borrowed, right? Um, And through credit delegation, Depositors can delegate their credit lines to others and earn some money on that. But in light of on-chain credit history to help me, for example, due diligence, those that I might want to delegate my credit to, what would incentivize me to delegate my assets if I don't know whether it will be repaid or not? Or is it the case that I would only delegate to another Aave user that I know and I trust already? I, I see multiple scenarios when it comes to credit risk. The one easy is, is that there's a wallet that takes delegations. Let's say, uh, let's say it's a wire wallet. Let's say uh, YA link wallet. Uh, and, and practically it takes delegations. You know, you delegate dozens of developers have read the code and, and they see that, okay, what happens is that this wallet takes the delegations, draws the credit from Aave, uh, goes to the, the curve and deposits there and farms CRV and 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 you know sells the CRV or whatnot and then distributes the profit to the uh, wallet depositors and in this situation you kind of see okay kind of there is not credit risk it's it's mainly on uh, multi-layered smart contract risk so you could definitely like think it in a, in a way that if I deposit I can get the funds back and there's no actual like a credit default event so that's straightforward. And I think this kind of use cases, there will be dozens uh, coming up. And and then there's a use case where, you know, you have the credit risk and there's two kind of ways. You, you're depositing into a vault that then borrows, but actually doesn't have, you know, this closed loop system, but then, you know, takes the funds and does something else with them. So it could be in a market maker that just needs to borrow a certain amount of Aave or a certain amount of WBTC, and they, they are 
market making in, in some centralized exchange. So you kind of know that there's some credit risk, but then again, you know that uh, the, the borrower is, let's say, a known market maker in the space. So they have reputation uh, at stake. And you can kind of like a, uh, go, go with that, uh, but also you can seal that relationship and, and put more terms, let's say, get, get that in writing. Uh, let's say you wrap it with a legal agreement. That was what happened in the first great delegation uh, to uh, diversify. So it practically happened uh, not in the user interface, but you know, there's, there was a, a, a one delegator that delegated into a, uh, created a vault where practically diversify uh, grabbed, uh, I think 20 WBTC for market making. And then they, they they made a legal agreement by using open law. And law, open law is very cool because you create the agreement and, and you put the smart contract that, that is the that you connect the agreement to. And when you press kind of like deploy, you know, the, the contract, well, once both parties are have signed, and, and the last party who signs, you know, deploys also the actual contract beneath. So you uh, so you have a, like a legal agreement plus you have the smart contract that it refers to and it deploys at the same time. And it, it, it's a very interesting way to connect like, you know, legal field into smart contract field and have like wrappers on top. So you could do this way, or you could just have a friend who says that, Hey, uh, let's say, can I borrow, the, can I borrow, let's say uh, 2000 USDC and you could be, yeah, sure. I have deposits in Aave and let me just create you the, the credit line. And, and then your friend just draws the credit and, you know, it's, it's up to you guys to 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 solve, solve your uh, matters, but but those are the, the things, and I, I think mostly it will be consumed uh, in a way that there's a closed-in smart contract system. The first example, and and the second uh, big use case will be the reputation-based, where the walls and and the borrowers will be they have so much reputation at stake that they don't want to do anything bad. So let's say I could imagine like in the future, you know, traditional financial institution could actually draw this way credit line uh, uh, from Aave and using in traditional finance, you know, uh, to get to source liquidity. And by doing that, you know, uh, they don't want to default because they might be regulated. They might, they don't want to take that uh, reputational uh, hit, but there's always mm -hmm. a credit risk in these scenarios, no matter what's the reputation. Right, right. That makes sense. And as a credit delegation borrower, I'm basically accessing, in this case, under collateralized liquidity, right? Yeah. Um, and in this situation, the the lender or the credit delegator is backstopping me as a liquidity provider, yeah. right? But do you think we'll find a more fully under collateralized loan function in DeFi anytime soon where there isn't this so-called backstop liquidity provider? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, with the same scenario, let's say there, there is a vault. Again, let's say it's a uh, traditional financial player, market maker, your friend is borrowing from the vault. Nothing stops from, let's say me, to actually depositing directly USDC into that uh, vault and, and, and then it's borrowed as well. So you could actually combinate. I, I think uh, what's interesting about the credit delegation is that it's it's kind of like backstopping, but it's, it's you know, as, as a depositor, you're earning on your deposit into Aave and then you're earning maybe on the relationship that you have with whoever you're, you're delegating. But, you know, the, the direct way is just to deposit into this vault that just gets, uh, the borrower gets the liquidity without any, putting any collateral into Aave. 
but the question is like also here that can we create a scalable um, grid network on, on chain? And I, I think it's, it's, it's possible, but uh, the issue that we are always coming into when it comes to, you know, this, whether it's credit, whether it's, you know, tokenization is that we are trying to do it uh, too universally in the way that we're trying to solve uh, an, an issue too, too widely. So let's say, let's take an example, tokenization and, and putting real world assets into on-chain, right? So, so everyone says, oh, that's difficult, you know, regulation, 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 whatnot. But if you look at like the, the biggest tokenizations now, it's practically tokenizations of dollars, USDC and, and, and so forth, and USDT to, to, to some extent. And what, what's interesting here is that it's just one jurisdiction, uh, which is the US, as you're using US dollars, and then you're putting on chain, and then you're using it in the whole ecosystem. So when you approach credit tokenization, you should follow the similar path and not trying to solve like the, the, the whole thing globally. Uh, at first, and then you can, you know, scale to different jurisdictions when it comes to this, because at the end of the day, like when it comes to credit, you have to have some underwriter uh, in some jurisdiction and you have to start from somewhere. So this is the the, the, the bottleneck so, so that we are trying to uh, solve, but I think it's going to happen. It might even happen this year that we have some interesting credit networks on chain. And I'm curious to see how it works because I don't think it's impossible and it should be doable. And in V2, You've also enhanced another borrow function called flash loans, which of course was available for V1. But in in this version, you also introduced batched flash loans and basically enables users to utilize capital in in much larger amounts and in a much faster way. Was the flash loan function built in response to a growing composability environment in DeFi or was it more a response to the growing borrow lending markets that you perhaps were seeing in the centralized finance side, and you wanted to kind of bring that over to the DeFi side? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think it's the the fact that the composability grew quite a lot. I mean, when we implemented the flash loan feature, like we were thinking that this is a nice, ni- nice feature that could be used. We had some use cases that, you know, you could, you could just borrow arbitrage a bit and like we never thought that it, it's going to be like used frequently so i think we have a couple of billion flash loans during 2020 and it, it's quite a lot um, so that's, that's an interesting point as well because like most of the flash loans are used for good not just hacking you know protocols and you know <laughs> battle testing them but uh, we never thought actually that people will start to use them f- so frequently and in the beginning no one actually used flash loans. So when we had the feature, like we had hard time actually like getting people to utilize them. So on hackathons and also kind of like on our messaging, we tried to get people to build things upon flash loans. I, I tried to get people to build rebalances, balancers of uh, refinancing tools and, and that kind of things. And, you know, after like a month and a half of like campaigning, <laughs> we saw like new stuff being built. I think DeFi server was one of the first that started to use flash loans to close the MakerDAO positions. And uh, then others started to follow. And then we even had like no code flash loans functionality, for example, Furu Combo did that. And, you know, then it started to pick up. And then when there was like first, I think decent like a hack, I mean, exploit with flash loans, I think it was BZX. The flash loan wasn't actually from Ave, it was from uh, DYDX because they had similar feature for their margin, but 
They used to call them uh, ninja loans. It was a feature that always existed there in DYDX. But then after like these events, then you know utilization started to pick up. And after that, like people started to actually look at this feature and start to build things. That was pretty cool to see, like actually like you have something there in your protocol, no one utilizes and at some point it picks up and people realize how cool it is. Let's also now talk about the yield and collateral swap function, which I I think is super cool because it kind of ties into my other question for you, which is about gas optimizations. I mean, we were talking a little bit before our conversation and I had to pay $65 on a $100 transaction, which drove me crazy. And, you know, in in this case, right, for a collateral swap uh, implementation, how could this have been critical for the DeFi ecosystem during a Black Thursday that we saw in March, if this were already implemented in your protocol at that time? Yeah, I I think it wouldn't have helped quite a lot because, you know, uh, the, the kind of feature is that, you know, if you if you want to if you want to stabilize your, your position, let's say you, you, you deposited ETH, you borrow USDC, you're pretty happy and let's say you have collateral, but then the collateral goes 50 to 60, 65% down, practically means that you need to refill your collateral, repay your debt. But if you were able to actually, let's say, when your collateral starts to decrease substantially, to swap it to, let's say, a stable collateral such as uh, USDC or DAI or whatnot, what, what, what actually um, would happen is that you will keep your position in, in that sense. So it will, it will de-risk your position. And as m- many people would do that, it will de-risk the whole protocol. So, so the Black Thursday, Aave did quite well. Uh, I, I think it was the most resilient protocol, but it also it's because the uh, risk framework that we are applying is, is very conservative. So in, in many assets, we don't allow, the, the protocol doesn't allow actually, <laughs> It doesn't allow to go in, in, in very high levels of loan to value ratio. And the reason we designed the risk framework this way is because, you know, even though uh, if you will be okay to borrow more against your collateral, um, if that collateral call moment uh, happens, uh, we see it as kind of like a bad user experience for the end user, because it's kind of like unfortunate, you can't predict all the market conditions. And we try to avoid that as much as possible. And, and that is why like the level of risk in, in, in the other protocol is a bit lower than, for example, in, in, in Maker or Compound. So in, in, in that sense, it would have helped, but also it would have helped more maybe the, the other protocols or you know, the whole DeFi space. So I, I think it's it's a, it's a function that should have been existed from day one. It's very difficult to build everything at once and, and kind of like... <laughs> And, you know, as the ecosystem grows, there will be more interesting features that, that can be. And, and like the gas, of course, is killing a bit the, the usage and, and also uh, fees as well. So our, our current issue is, of course, like gas in general, but we did a lot of gas optimization. I think we got half of the gas rid of uh, from version one to version two. But also like when it comes to collateral swaps uh, uh, and deposit swaps, we're using Uniswap. And our goal is to kind of like open up uh, the infrastructure in a way that uh, all the DEX aggregators and other AMMs, they can actually um, get whitelisted and offer you know, their own swaps to our uh, end users. And, and this is something that we, 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 try, to, we try to be more uh, inclusive always. You know, we, we want to work with everyone uh, as long as the, the security aspect is, is, is good and you know, there's good community support. 
And we try to be as, as inclusive as possible when it comes to integrations and user using other technology that is this available. Yeah, I mean, ga- gas is, I, I feel you, I, I have to say, I am paying also those gas fees and I'm not happy either. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, how are you bringing down those gas fees? If, if you can kind of talk about it in a nutshell, you know, how did you bring it down by 50% just from V1 to V2? I think mainly on on kind of like improving the architecture that we had uh, from version one to version two, we simplified a lot of things. The version one, you know, smart contract code, it's, it's very much in two big contracts, but we chopped down into libraries and we made more efficient usage and uh, I don't know why, but, you know, there's like a lot of emphasis in, in the Abe team on gas costs, like especially uh, Emilio from our team. He's like very, very, very much concerned about gas and, and saving gas than anything else. And, and you know, it, it's actually pretty fun because the more gas you sa- save, the more, you know, adoption you get. Because that means that, you know, if, if, if you pay 50 bucks to, to deposit, of course, like uh, it kills the, the small uh deposit use case, which is actually what we are chasing for. So we are trying to like democratize finance and, and get it uh, as widely used as possible. So that let's say um, uh, me and someone from, from let's say uh, Brazil or India uh, or Asia has the same uh, same access to the same yields. But you know, if I feel that for me, the gas cost isn't big and someone from India uh, might see that the gas cost is is a bigger barrier, it, it, it kind of decreases the uh, democratizing aspect there, but I, I think like that's a, that's one thing. Uh, so we did very good work on on the on the on the gas savings, and now we're trying to figure out like how we can get further so we can like uh, we we can actually like uh, remove as many barriers costs uh, uh, for the end users, and and that's like what one of the things we're now focusing on on this like uh, Q1. So so for for us it's. Uh, it's very important. Yeah, to continue on this line of conversation, let's talk about your thoughts on L1, L2 chains. In light of these high gas fees, you know, what's your view on non-ETH blockchains or so-called Ethereum killers out there? Do you plan to bring Aave to another L1 protocol? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> so interesting is that why Ethereum has been like very successful is obviously the developer communities here. You know, it's been very much the focus, and now it has like an ecosystem, right? So we have a certain type of ecosystem. We have DeFi, we have interesting NFT ecosystem, like a creator community, and I, I think like every blockchain is also kind of like uh, its own culture and ecosystem. So what we have in Ethereum will not exist in 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 Polkadot. Instead, there's going to be a bit different kinds of things on, on Polkadot. I, I'm not saying that there's not going to be decentralized finance. I, I, I truly believe. Um, same goes for, for example, Cosmos and so forth. But it's just different. And, and you know, for us, what, what's important is that, uh, like, as, as an Aave community, that uh, definitely our headquarters, you know, operational headquarters, so, so-called, is in Ethereum, on Ethereum. But, like, we want... To be as inclusive as possible, and and you know access to those different ecosystem and cultures, and and be part of that as well. So I would say that when there is more action, let's say on, on Polkadot, when when there is you know um, because as a lending protocol, we need two things: we need you know issuance, uh, which is basically let's say stable coins and other assets, and second thing is 
a trading venue. So things could be liquidated and, and so forth. So, so definitely like once those things are on, on Polkadot, definitely Aave will follow. And, and same for other interesting uh, blockchains where, where there's, you know, adoption and, and also uh, layer twos. So I, I think definitely we'll follow the narrative and we want to be part of what's happening there. But also one thing is important is that it's very interesting technology. So, so Polkadot is very interesting, not just the, the debate structured with the parachains, but actually building WebAssembly and, and Substrate. It, it's quite uh, fascinating technology. So I, I think it's also kind of like a mental challenge for us and we, we want to uh, be part of that as well. So I, I guess like we, we try to be very much uh, interconnected and I believe that uh, I always hated the, the one one thing rules everything, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's always like you keep hearing it, but you know, there's always like alternative people want to choose and have choices. And I, I think in the future, there will be multiple blockchains only because of the reason that you don't want to secure all the transaction with the, the highest mining power or, you know, whatever you're using for the consensus, but there might be transactions that doesn't need that much of uh, security. And, you know, uh, security is always a cost. So that has to be proportionate. Keeping an open mind, I guess, is the is the answer for now. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we wrap up here, Astani, I did want to touch on one last thing, which I know you're very excited about, which is how Aave is creating new money markets. Talk about that and what users can expect from Aave in regards to, you know, these new types of money markets that will be created over this next year. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting part about the Aave protocol is that you can create new markets. A market means a practically a pool with assets that you can use as collateral and, and borrow against uh, other assets. And as you create new markets, you can actually tweak what kind of contents they have. You could have a market where there is only one asset, let's say ETH, and you can only borrow, let's say, USDC. And, and that affects the kind of like risk profile of that pool. So maybe the interest rate is lower, but it's less riskier pool compared to the, the current main market. And, and you can kind of like adjust different kinds of risk and reward profiles and let the end users to choose like what kind of yields they want and to what kind of risk they want to subscribe. And some of the new money markets are quite interesting because uh, you, for example, have, um, we actually have now multiple coming. So one is where you can use your Uniswap liquidity shares as a collateral and borrow against we had this in in uh early in, in version one but with the uniswap version one uh liquidity shares so now we're doing the version two so that's there's one community developer who is actually working on deploying this market and obtaining proposition power and putting that vote on chain and and this is going to happen soon and similar we're we're doing with the the, the curve lp shares and also balancer lp shares and and also there's going to be um more private money markets where you know you have whitelisting so you have permissioned venue and that's that's important when it comes to institutional adoption so kind of like as a protocol there's always something for everyone and and i think that's that's the way we will go and and also one, one thing i want to mention before we wrap up is that we actually have on friday we have an anniversary so it's actually one year since the launch of the the our protocol so if anyone wants to join i don't know when when this podcast is going to live, but so 8th of January uh, is exactly one year since the other was launched. Yeah. Excellent. Congrats. Great. And, and this will be like an AMA type of thing with you or? 
I don't know even like what it will be. Like, like we basically will have some sort of, I don't know, Zoom call and we have in- invited a bunch of people. So I think it w- it's going to be just kind of an open, open uh, celebration. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Kito Stani, it's been so great to <laughs> chat with you. Wakavapaiva. <laughs> Kito Spalian. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.